0: Those of you who might be visiting with us today, or uh, or new uh, to us, to the congregation, and I haven't had a chance to to introduce myself to. My name is Ken. I'm a retired Army chaplain and teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, and it's my honor to uh, share God's word with you today. Our scripture passage is taken from Romans chapter 12. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, you can find it on page 940 of your Pew Bible, but I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, But obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts, thoughts alternately accusing Or else defending them. On the day when, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you alone have the words of life. Open those words to us as we sang just a few minutes ago, that we might might understand and see the ancient paths of your scripture and be more conformed to the image of Christ when we leave than when we came. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Frank Thielman writes, In Romans, Paul wants to show that the gospel is for everyone without exception. He is obligated to proclaim the gospel to the Greeks, to barbarians, to wise to the unlearned, and to the Jews. If the good news of God's saving righteousness in Jesus Christ is for everyone, then the bad news that all stand under condemnation, apart from God's righteousness, is also for everyone. Now, one of the benefits of exegetically working our way through the book of Romans is that we gain a better understanding of the flow of the author's uh, Arguments and discussion, and the context of each passage. When we tend to take things and just preach passages out that we happen to like, we have a tendency not to see everything in clearly in the context in which it's written. But one of the things about going through Romans the way that we've been doing, and John the way we did last year, is that we can clearly see the context of what's gone before and get a feeling of what is coming. After opening with uh, greetings and with a section on Thanksgiving, Uh, Paul gets to the heart or the core thesis of Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, which Ben preached on a couple of weeks ago. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of Christ is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He then moves on um, to argue in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, which Dennis preached on last week, that because of their idolatry and immorality, particularly talking about the Gentiles in that text, they are accountable to God for sin and need the gospel. Now, today we pick up Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, which we just read a few minutes ago. In my, small, in my home group, we've been studying the book of Jeremiah recently. And that's a difficult book to teach. Because it seems like every page that you turn is full of the judgment of God on his wayward people. I mean, yeah, that's true of any of the prophets. If you try teaching through the prophets, you're going to find page by page, as you flip it, a lot of talk about judgment. Um, no one likes to talk about judgment. They didn't like to talk about it in Jeremiah's day, like how they treated him when he, when he uh, proclaimed that message. Uh, they didn't like to talk about it in Paul's day, and they, we certainly don't like to talk about it today in our tendency to kind of look for more of a feel-good approach to the gospel, I, I kind of put it. In fact, I, I was curious. So I pulled out the, uh, pulled out the Trinity hymnal in our pew just to see how many hymns there are on judgment in here. Take a guess. Two. They're not none, they're two. They're at least two. And one of those, I'm not even quite sure, deals with the subject of judgment, in my estimation. (laughs) But we just don't like to talk about it. Uh, Judgment is not our favorite subject. But yet, like a diamond on a velvet-black background, the gospel shines the clearest when you hold it against the backdrop of the judgment of God. You cannot have the good news of the gospel. In fact, you don't even need the good news of the gospel if you don't have the bad news first. Now Paul continues his argument then in Romans chapter 2, picking up where Dennis left off, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, that the gospel is for everyone without exception because all stand under condemnation apart from God's righteousness. He does this in three stages. And for those of you who are note-takers, those three stages are going to be your outline for the day. In verses 1 through 5, He exposes the Jews' false presumption of superiority over the Gentiles and shows that God's judgment is deserved. In verses 6 through 11, Paul sets forth the theological underpinning or basis for that revelation, arguing that God assesses all people on the same basis, that God's judgment is based on works. Finally, he closes his argument in verses 12 through 16 by introducing the topic of the law, and shows that God's judgment is applied impartially. So let's see what the Lord has to say to us through Paul and what those words mean for our understanding of our own faith today. First, Paul talks about God's judgment is deserved in verses 1 through 5. Now, if you remember back last week, it shouldn't be hard to do, right? If you remember back last week when Dennis preached, In the immediate preceding uh, context, what does Paul do? He lists out a number of sins, right? That it's like a list, a hall of fame of sins that flourish whenever uh, we reject God. Now he signals a shift in his argument from where Dennis left off to here in Romans chapter two, one through five, by moving from a third person plural. I know you were told that we'd be no grammar, but uh, it's important to understand. He shifts from they, which he's been talking about now, into verses 1 through 5, to you. He uses a literary form called the diatribe. Uh, a lot of times I think we think that the, the, uh, the authors were just kind of writing things down and didn't uh, use a lot of technique in what they did, but that's not true. You'll see that in this passage today. Paul uses an argument that's very, a method that's very common in ancient world, still common today in writing, and that's a diatribe in which a writer Instructs his audience by tell, by letting them kind of listen in on a discussion between himself and the representative of another viewpoint. And today, uh, he, in this passage, in this case, the viewpoint is that of the morally religious people of Paul's day. That's with his fellow Jews. They had staked out a claim of moral superiority. You can almost see them in the corner. I can almost, like when I read this passage, almost like visualize them in the corner standing there, pointing at their their Gentile neighbors and saying, we aren't like that. We don't hate God. We don't do those kinds of sins. Like their ancestors, they reasoned that as God's chosen people, they were immune from judgment. God is tolerant, he's kind and patient, therefore he will always overlook our sins. Yet Paul points out their hypocrisy and impending judgment in relation to the practices of evil that they'd condemn in others. While proclaiming their righteousness, they were guilty of the same types of sins, if not the very same sins that they were denouncing in the Gentile neighbors that they had. They were guilty of what I call presumptive grace. They counted on their heritage, their lineage and their adherence to the law to save them. Much like Paul's own presumption before his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road when he met Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Remember how Paul described himself? Hebrew of Hebrews, keeper of the law, Pharisee. He was depending on his heritage, his lineage, his understanding of the law to get him in a right relationship with God. The religious Jews will be condemned not merely because they judged the Gentiles, but because they practice the same evils that they criticize and judge in others. They cannot appeal to God's covenant. They can't appeal to their heritage to shield them from God's judgment, for God judges all people by what they've done. Mere possession of the law is not an advantage. They have to obey it. But Paul says God is patient. Again and again, he gives the people of God a chance to get it together. To turn to him in repentance and trust, but they refuse. Therefore, like the Gentiles, the Jews are without excuse before God and are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. I think this serves as a reminder for those of us who claim to be people of faith that we have to be careful of presumptive grace. Trying to, we have to avoid justifying our our own wrongdoing by judging others. Who are in our opinion do worse admit it we all do it right we all look at people who are worse than us and sometimes we justify our own willingness to deal or not deal with the sin in our lives by saying well you know it could be worse it could be like you know that person that seems like there's a parable in the in the gospels about that right And we have to guard against depending on our connection to the institutional church, our heritage, or even our understanding of grace to make us less accountable to our sins. It's just not knowing the words and knowing the ideas. It's the practice that makes a difference. We'll talk more about that. Thielman says it very succinctly. He says, this text should prompt Christians to examine their own hearts to see if they are hard and unrepentant, distracted by the sins of others, from our own need to acknowledge and turn from sin. It happens to me, and I'm sure it happens to you. We're so distracted by what other people are or are not doing that we don't get the time and take the time to look at what we are or are not doing. And I think it's especially true as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning and as we hear God's word and as we listen to him speak to us through Paul's words that we ought to take the time to examine our own hearts to see if we are hard and haven't been willing to judge and deal with the sins in our own lives even minimizing those sins because you know, a lot of times I, we all do that too that's not a bad one, sin you know, yeah sure I get angry or sure I do and you fill in the blank or whatever it is that is your besetting problem or sin And we can easily dismiss it, not deal with it. Now, Paul signals another transition here by shifting from the second person, you again, back to the third person, they. So he's been talking to this imaginary Jewish uh, conversationalist. And in verses 6 to 11, he turns back to, to talking in third person. He says, in these verses, Paul argues that God's judgment is based on works. We see this assertion clearly in verse 6, and listen to the text again. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. God's judgment is impartial and is according to our deeds. It's what we do or fail to do that counts when it comes to the the judgment of God. James Boyce, the late Dr. James Boyce, he commented on this text. He said, when God judges men and women by an accurate and comprehensive examination of their deeds, as he says he will do, all will be condemned. Verses 7 to 10 explain this idea further by means of what they call chiasm. I'm going to ask if we use modern-day technology to kind of show that up here, um, because I think it's easier to see than it is for me to explain. I do that for a couple reasons. One, I want you to understand the argument that Paul's making here in the text, but I also want you to be able to see this in future places where you see it in the scriptures, and you'll find it other places in the scriptures, both in the Gospels and Paul's letters and others. It's a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order that results in a mirror as the ideas are reflected back in the passage. Can you see that? Where the A starts and it ends as an A, and the B, and then a B, and then a C in the middle. It builds up and then it reflects back. Hopefully you'll be able to spot it when you see it elsewhere. So God will judge everyone equitably, Those who do good will attain eternal life. Those who do evil will suffer wrath. Wrath for those who do evil. Glory for those who do good. And God judges impartially. Now, usually, the center ideas are the ideas that the the writer wants you to focus on, but not always. It's it's either the first position or the center position that the writer wants you to, to kind of grab a hold of. In this case, Paul wants you to grab a hold of the main idea that he's trying to discuss in this text And that is that God assesses everyone, Jew and Gentiles, on the same basis. The Jews thought they didn't have to worry about it because they had it all in a lock on it, right? Like religious people in every century, and ours too, and even in our own hearts. But God is impartial, and when it comes to the ultimate judgment against our sin and rebellion, there is a level playing field. So when you read in verses 8 and 10 that God will give glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good and those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, you may be thinking to yourself, or I hope you're thinking to yourself, did Paul believe that some could obtain eternal life by doing good works? Looks like it, sort of. But Paul, Paul's argument in, verse, in chapter 1, which Dennis started last week and which will end in chapter 3, verse 20, that's a whole section in this middle section where Paul is making this argument about the gospel, is intended to establish the reason why God has unleashed his saving power in the gospel. Human beings are locked in sin and need to be rescued. So to conclude that Paul must be thinking of specific people who gain salvation by works in these verses is to miss the larger argument that Paul makes and undermines the argument that he's going to make in just a couple verses later that all are saved by Christ's righteousness alone. Paul has been talking about the standard by which God, God judges all human beings. And that standard is by the things that they do, the works that they do. People who do evil works will suffer wrath. People who persist in doing good will gain eternal life. But in both cases, it is the criterion of judgment, not the people who meet the criterion that Paul has in mind. That God judges all people in accordance with their works is a pervasive theme in the Old and New Testament. Works are the standard by which we will all be judged, but it is not, not how they will be saved. So if Paul isn't saying it is possible for people to be justified by their works, then who are these people? Who are these people who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality? Who are they? Some suggest Paul is speaking hypothetically here. That he is just basically saying, well, if you could obey the law, and you could keep it perfectly and do it all, then you could be saved by doing it. But it's not possible because, as he just said, no one keeps the law. The Jews who have it and the Gentiles who don't, none of them keep it. That could be one possibility of understanding it. Either way, it comes out to the same point that no one is saved by works. Either way. But I think, given the flow of Paul's argument and the larger context of what he's going to be saying in a few minutes, in, in a few passages from now, we actually see him reference this same group in Romans chapter 2, verse 26 to 29. I don't know who has that passage and preaches that he's going to be Dennis or Camper. But Paul makes it clear that those who obey the law have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. He writes, "For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor in circumcision, that which is that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is inward, one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God." So while works are proof of salvation. They are never its source. Do you get that? They're never its source, but they are proof of your salvation. There was a dangerous idea going around; it's still around, when I was a younger believer, that uh, somehow that you know that, that becoming a Christian was like a two-stage process that you could you could accept Christ as Savior and then come along later and finally realize you need to accept Him as Lord. So in between, you could do all kinds of crazy things. I mean you could live all kinds of crazy, a crazy lifestyle and before, and not understand the need to walk according to, to God's word. But when you became convinced that the Lordship of Him his Lordship in your life, then you could, you know, accept that and then become right with Him. It's dangerous because you don't accept Christ as Savior. You accept the Savior and Lord. He is who he is. He is both Savior and Lord. Not in like a kind of two-step process. So while works are never the, the source of salvation, they are a proof. Salvation is not by works, or it's not by faith with good works added. Because the plain teaching of the Scripture is that the true believer is eternally secure in Christ. We are in a little bit different position than the Jewish audience that was listening to Paul. But the force of Paul words, Paul's words here remind us once again of the danger of presumptive grace that I talked about earlier. Not just for the Jewish people who are listening to him, but for the Gentiles, for the Christians in his audience. Sin is a serious matter, and a lack of concern about sin is incompatible with true faith. If legalism, the idea that you can be justified by keeping the law, is an aberration of the gospel on one side, it is an equal error to think that one can be saved by faith and then continue down the same path he or she has been walking, doing no good works at all. Those are the two dangers on one side or the other of misinterpreting the gospel. A lot of the struggles we have theologically in, our, in the church, that is uh, today, the modern-day church, is an understanding of that very balance. So we argue for one side or the other, not, real, not recognizing that it's right there in the middle, that you, if you really are a believer in Christ, you have to take sin seriously. It doesn't mean that you won't have things in your life that will be persistent sins that you have to struggle with. It may happen, but you will want to deal with those things. You won't just want to sweep them under the rug and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Paul teaches that a person's works are are a necessary component of a saved person's life, and yet at the same time does not think it contradictory that one cannot be justified by the works of the law. We cannot be true believers and continually presume upon God's grace, using it as an excuse to keep on sinning rather than a motivation for repentance and further growth in God's grace. We cannot say, well, this might be wrong, but God will always forgive me. That's just not an attitude that somebody who truly is a Christian has. One writer expressed it in his commentary very well. He says, if you think you can continue in your sin and God will forgive you when you decide, you are on dangerous ground. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, your, your, your salvation is eternally secure. We believe that. We believe the scriptures clearly teach that. But I do think sometimes we assume a lot in terms of our assurance when we we have an attitude like that that somehow we can continue on the sin and God will forgive us on our time. You're presuming on God's grace. That's how that writer ends that quote. Finally, Paul closes this section in verses 12 through 16 by reiterating that God's judgment is impartial. For the Jews who have the Mosaic Law, which Paul mentions for the first time in Romans in in these verses, they are judged for sinning with or without the law. Having the Mosaic Law ultimately does not help the Jews. There is an advantage, and Paul will talk about what the advantage of being a Jew is later uh, in this letter, but they have to be doers, not just hearers of the law. And like everyone, they can only keep the law through Christ. While the Gentiles do not have the written law of God, they have not been left without guidance from God. Paul writes that the Gentiles have the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience-bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. The word conscience, which is kind of a unique use of the word by Paul, and thoughts in verse 15 suggest that somehow this law is built into us, all people, as a basic sense of right and wrong. Now, conscience isn't used by Paul in a way that we kind of commonly think of it today, that that it is somehow the source of moral standards, like, you know, you always hear, well, my conscience, this or that, will or will not, as if somehow our conscience is able to tell us what is right or wrong. But our conscience is imperfect. It's been imperfect since the fall. So it doesn't have that rule, that, that way of working in our lives. Rather, it passes judgment on whether one has abided by the, the norm set by the law of God. Well, Paul does not tell us how people have access to that in, internal law, I wish he would have, it made my work as an ethicist a lot more easy. He distinctively endorses the idea of natural law. It's a, the, the idea that the knowledge of God's basic moral demands are built into people through God's creation. When God created the world, he created it with physical laws. We don't, have, we don't even think about that. Gravity and all the things that are physical laws of the universe. But he also created it with a set of moral laws and rules, which we're not capable of totally grasping because of the fall. But it doesn't mean they're not there. Now, the idea of natural law has kind of fallen out of favor in some circles because some people assume that it means, that, it, that or suggest that we're able to reason ourselves to God. That is not what it means. We cannot reason ourselves to God. If God doesn't work in our hearts, we don't care about him. This is that simple. From our Reformed tradition, we believe that. God first of all takes a step towards us, then we respond in grace to Him. But it's not the other way around. That's not what Paul or the rest of Scriptures teaches. He simply points out that there's enough of the original moral order infused into the universe that, that, there, that and it remains in the human heart, in particular the conscience, to hold men and women accountable. There he hold, held them accountable for the knowledge of His existence, which we see elsewhere in scriptures and a basic sense of right and wrong in the end paul's main point is that both the jews and the gentiles will be judged impartially against the fair standard the jews will have the law who have the law will be judged against its standards while the gentiles who don't have it will be judged against the law of god written in their hearts sometimes people t- ask me that well what about people who've never heard the gospel i said Does it doesn't matter because they know in their hearts that they have or have not done things that are inherently right or wrong based on that natural law that God has put in the hearts of men and women. Paul's teaching reminds us that there's always points of common ground with the unbelieving world around us. That's kind of one of the applications I take away from that passage. So sort of one of the reasons it's one of my favorite passages and the work that I do as a professor, I teach ethics. And I know that, and I and require my students sometimes to ask themselves the questions what if you're dealing with somebody in a context, and all these people are studying to be chaplains, either in a healthcare field or the military or someplace? What if you come to a situation where you cannot use the scriptures to defend the position that you hold? How do you defend it? And I'm trying to get them to help them to understand that there are always points of common ground that they can look for that God has inherently put into the universe that they can appeal to. They're out there in the culture, and we can engage the culture by looking for common ground, points where individuals in the culture still have a sense of what God has put into creation. And sometimes there are simple things, like dignity, and respect, and honesty. Whether or not people recognize God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures isn't the point. They're still bound by the laws, the moral and spiritual laws that are written and infused into God's created order. Commentaries write, well, the proper response of God's people to non-believers is not to stand in judgment over them as a group, which is what the Jews did to the Gentiles at the beginning of this text, but to humbly seek to lead them to the gospel, communicating clearly that Christians are as as, as much as anyone, need God's continual forgiveness through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, your presence here is a part of the Lord's kindness, tolerance, and patience towards you that we read about earlier in the text. He wants you to know that while the bad news is that everyone is equally condemned, the good news is that we can all be set free through the sacrifice of Christ and his imputed righteousness through faith. So if you have a question about that, what that means, and you're here this morning, come up front after the benediction. I'd be glad to talk to you. I know Camper will probably go out and greet people and say hello, but I'll stand up here for a while. If you're a non-believer here this morning and say, that just doesn't quite make sense to me, I'd love to talk to you. For those of us who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul warns us to avoid presumptive grace. The idea that our connection to the institutional church our heritage or even our understanding of grace and all those christian words makes us less accountable for our sin somehow likewise he must kind of avoid a cavalier attitude towards sin thinking that we can just keep on sinning and god will simply overlook it out of his love for us until we decide to deal with it instead paul's words should help us to see that we have an urgent daily need for repentance You've often heard from this pulpit, Dennis, Camper, myself, Ben, others, talk about the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. I think that's what it means. It means to come to grips with your need for repentance and grace every day. I didn't just need it on the day I first came to know Jesus Christ. I need it every day. And I'll need it till the day I pass from this life into the next The gospel is for everyone, without exception, because everyone stands under condemnation apart from God's righteousness. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came. He died. He rose again from the dead. And through faith in him, his righteousness can be imputed to you. And you can stand before, the, before God, not saying, I'll stand on my own works, because that's not going to work. But I'm going to stand on the works of Christ, despite my sinful, flawed, imperfect relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the bad news, because if it wasn't for the bad news, we wouldn't have any good news to celebrate. We wouldn't need it. But we need need the the bad news because we need the good news. The so Father, be with us. Help us be more like Jesus when we leave than when we came, for we ask in his name. Amen.